Thank you, Amy. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Amen? It's fantastic to be a believer and to know that all of your grace is covered, all of your sin is covered. You stand in grace. Well, good morning. I'm Kurt Parker. It's good to be with you this morning. I hope that today has been a blessing for you as you've joined in worship, as you joined in uh, in the form of musical uh, singing and, and uh, giving and praying and all those parts of the things that are part of worship of our Lord. We are about to enter into our time in the Word. If you have a little one up through grade four and you'd like them to be in a graded uh, age-appropriate service downstairs, Children's Church, you can be dismissed at this time. Their teachers will meet you in the foyer and you can pick them up downstairs when we're all finished up here. Up through grade four. Also, you can keep them with you if you'd like. We love kids and they're certainly welcome to be with us in the service. We're in a continuing study, if you're new with us today, a continuing study in God's plan for a healthy church. That's our general topic concerning our verse-by-verse teaching through First and Second Corinthians. In, predict, in particular, as we've made our way to chapter 11, we have begun to talk about conduct in the church as Paul has begun to bring this into focus, particularly fellowship in the Lord's table. This is our third stop in chapter 11, if you're new with us, and our first dealing with fellowship. And this specific topic of the Lord's Supper and fellowship is really the second issue that Paul has to deal with as part of a general topic of church conduct, which is going to extend all the way through chapter 14. So now you know where we're going. Uh, How long it's going to take to get there is anybody's guess, but we're going to work our way through as the Lord gives us understanding. Turn in your copy then, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to pick up at verse 17. I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard. And you can find that in some of the seats in front of you, or read in your copy. I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together and be able to be enriched in our understanding of what the Word of God says. I hope this is not the first time you've been in the Word this morning. If it is, you're starving uh, spiritually. So let me encourage you on a day-by-day basis to be in the Word. You can find a Bible reading calendar on the welcome table on your way out on the right-hand side. Please grab one. Start working your way through the Word uh, chapter by chapter each year and allow the Lord to help you grow as a believer and an understanding of his nature. So we'd love for you to do that, be part of that uh, emphasis here to being in the Word. All right, picking up in but in giving. That's where Paul is starting, chapter 11, verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for better but for worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Verse 20, therefore, when you meet together, it is is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Verse 30, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and in number sleep. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. And we've entitled this, of course, Fellowship in the Lord's Table. But fondly, I've kind of subtitled it, How a Potluck Goes to Pot. And I think that's a way, as we take a look at this passage, I think you can see 
Uh, there's going to be some emphasis Paul, uh, Paul has here. Now, Paul's dealing with, obviously, a specific issue in the Corinthian church, and we're going to look at those issues and, in their context, understand them. But I think as we've gone through this whole book, we've noticed that even though there are individual issues going on inside the Corinthian church, there are universal principles that are applicable to all churches, and we're going to see that as well as we go through this passage. Fellowship is an important part of church ministry. It plays a vital role and in unity and thus in effectiveness of the church. There is in fellowship a cultivating of friendships, a bearing of burdens, a mutual accountability, a discipleship, and a need meeting that the Lord designed in the makeup of every believer. And the design of fellowship and the breaking of bread really focuses on the fulfillment of those kinds of things. Like if you would, and, and this is not normally our habit, but I'm going to have you turn a few places today. We normally stay close by our original text, but as we're doing some introductory t- uh, things here and setting the context, I want you to turn, if you would, as I talk, to Acts chapter 2. Will you? Acts 2.41. Just hold your finger here. We'll be back. But Acts 2.41. The Holy Spirit began His work in the early churches is where we're turning uh, through the preaching of the Word to bring men and women to repentance and faith and through the word, continually to bring them to sanctification and to equipping. And he began by drawing believers to fellowship and the breaking of bread and, and to prayer to strengthen them, to unify them, to care for them. And it continues to be the model for the church today. And just to firm those thoughts up in your mind, it really was established as a precedent pretty early on, right after Pentecost. Following Peter's teaching, on the day of Pentecost, we can really catch a glimpse of the outward manifestation of the body of Christ or the church in some of the activities that began right then. Look in verse 41, if you would, of Acts chapter 20, or Acts chapter 2, rather. Verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized, as Peter has been teaching, and, and he brought conviction through the Holy Spirit and the word of God onto the group. And, and so they're listening, and they received his word. They, in other words, they came to faith. They were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Verse 46, Day by day, continuing with one, one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Stop right there. There's more than a few things that pop up there in those six verses that indicate how the early church reacted to their salvation. They were baptized and a number of other things that uh, they continued in. But for our needs today, I just want to point out a few things that they continued in and became part of the fabric of the church. And you'll find this in your notes if you're a note taker. You can uh, copy some of these things down. First thing was the apostles' teaching. That means the teaching of the Word of God, both from the Old Testament and the new revelation God was handing down as he completed his Word. So they gave themselves over to the apostles' teaching, the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, The second thing, to fellowship, which is the Greek noun koinonia, its root meaning is its sharing. It's sharing, really, in communication and in life and possessions. Uh, the idea is inclined to impart. That's really the translation, if you will, of fellowship, inclined to impart. People came together in the early church for fellowship, inclined to impart, free and giving with liberality amongst themselves. Whatever was needed, whatever needed to be done, whatever it was, they gave themselves to the teaching of the Word of God. They gave themselves to fellowship. And the third thing is the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is interesting. It can have two meanings here, and not always clear which one is being discussed until you really get into the context And even then, not always perfectly clear, the transition. But the first meaning is the sharing of food. Uh, The second meaning is the partaking of the Lord's table. So the breaking of bread, they gave themselves to the teaching of the Word of God, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is the sharing of food in a a love feast, if you will, and uh, sharing the Lord's table. And as I said, without the the context, and even in some cases with it, it's not certain what's being referred to individually. In verse 41, it appears that we just read, they indicated they're having a fellowship uh, or the Lord's table is the first one in verse 41. In verse 46, it could be indicating a fellowship meal. Um, but anyway, the, it appears that the early church actively involved itself in both of those things at the same time, which 
uh, helps us understand this passage Paul's going to refer to. They gave themselves over to both of those. And, and then the fourth thing they continued in corporately was prayer. So continued in the Word of God, they continued in fellowship, and they continued in the breaking of bread, and they continued in prayer. And particularly here, it's bringing petitions, praises, requests to the Lord, speaking them to Him, and here it's done corporately. So they came together, they studied the Word of God, they participated in fellowship, or the, uh, the inclined to sharing uh, one another with one another, the breaking of bread, and to prayer together. And I think there's some argument that can be made uh, in, for the order that those things are presented to us. And although the way they're done, they were done in the early church uh, differs in some respects to the way they're done here at Berean or in other modern churches, I think the argument could be made that placing the teaching of the Word as the primary thing followed by fellowship makes for an effective church model. I think that you can see, particularly if you've been faithful in attending the teaching of the Word and the planned fellowships that go along uh, with the ministry model here, the benefit can be yours personally and ours corporately if we're doing it correctly. The early church gave themselves to it. I think that the modern church needs to give themselves to it if we are, if you will, being the church. If we're actually doing the one another's of the church, if we're participating in the body activities of the church, those kinds of things, I think that um, you'll see the benefit, certainly. Because it's possible to be doing it wrong, which is where we are in Paul's instruction to the church. So, obviously, they were still participating in these things, but they weren't doing it as they should. Now, as we pointed out, Paul is addressing... Uh, the actual church services as we go through chapter, starting in chapter 11. Things that are occurring in uh, the activities when they're meeting. And some of these things, uh, these good things that the church did after Pentecost, we saw in Acts 2, had been corrupted here in Corinth. And Paul's going to deal with it. Now let's look at chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 17. So you can flip back over there. We'll have a few other places to go, but for now you can settle in there. Chapter 11, verse 17, we can establish the setting. That's the thing we're going to do first. You can see that in your notes. We're going to establish the setting, and then we can make some more introductory comments and fill in some gaps here. Verse 17, but in giving this instruction, Paul says, but in giving this instruction, pause right there, that is the verb par angelon. That's the word for command. So in giving this command, Paul's really prefacing everything he's going to say by letting them know that, you know, I'm going to, I've, brought to, I've been brought to the place where I'm going to have to give you some commands. I'm going to have to give you some instructions. He says, and I have to do this because what you're doing isn't good. So Paul follows up and he says this. But in giving this instruction, this command, I do not praise you. So here's the thing. The present situation concerning this part of your assembly isn't winning any ribbons. The thing that you're doing here as part of what the early church did is not getting any commendation from me. There are some of the most direct and harsh words that Paul has to say to any congregation in any of his letters. And you're going to see this. He's going to say this particular phrase twice in this passage. I'm not praising you about this, Paul says. I've got some very important, very serious things to say to you, and the Lord has some very serious things to do among you if you don't fix it. And so it puts a lot of emphasis on the fellowship issue and on the breaking of bread and sharing the Lord's table with one another. And so I think right away it draws our attention. It's such a serious condition that is present that the Lord is going to have to come into the congregation and he's going to have to discipline it. And some are weak, in fact, and we saw it. Some are sick and a number sleep, which is a euphemistic of being uh, of killed, of being taken from the world. So Paul has some serious things to say about fellowship and about breaking bread together and the way it has to be done and the way it's currently being done, which isn't correct. So Paul says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, Paul says, at this point, it'd be better if you didn't come. You're not coming together for better, he says. When you actually show up there because of what you're bringing to the table, if you will, this isn't a good thing, he says. Can you imagine Paul saying that? It'd be better if you didn't come. It's for worse, not for good, that you show up. Would you, you know, what would prompt him to say this? And what, are they, what are they coming together to do? Now, to get a better idea of the setting here, I think, um, and we're going to kind of break it up this way. I'm going to give you the setting. I'm going to give you the sin. I'm going to give you the standard Severe discipline and the self-examination. That kind of is the handholds, if you will, of getting through this passage. So we're going to see what the setting is. We're going to see what the sin is. Paul's going to reestablish the standard of what should be going on. He's going to talk about severe discipline if it doesn't start changing and, and self-examination, which is all part of this fellowship that, as they come together. Now, you know this because we read this every time we celebrate the Lord's table, but if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 20. Turn there if you would. Matthew 26, 20. (coughs) 
in Matthew 26, 20, we see that on the evening before Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples prepared the Passover meal, what we would know as the Seder dinner now, in remembrance of God's deliverance of the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. Now, building up to the Passover uh, meal in Egypt, the Lord had really dis been dis uh, demonstrating his power over the elements, uh, over life, a series of plagues. The last one was the death of the firstborn. And just to remind you of how that went, the only ones who were delivered were the ones who had followed the specific rules the Lord had given, which was the killing of the Passover lamb, blood on the doorpost, and the lentil, the eating of the lamb, part of it, and the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread, and then being girded up and ready to travel. That was how that was supposed to be done. Today, Seder dinners, Orthodox Jews pretty much resemble that, and they go through some of those motions, girding up, ready to go, bitter herbs, the lamb, and, and the unleavened bread, and all of that. So this is the mind of nearly every Jewish person at this time of year. So back in this first century, it is in the mind of Jesus' disciples, and so they come together to keep it. And verse 20 of Matthew chapter 26 says this. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples, verse 21, and they were eating. Let's pause right there. Jesus then goes on to tell them that one of them will betray him, and he kind of fills in some gaps there about what's going to happen as he makes his way to the cross. And then pick up in verse 26. While they were eating, now what are they eating, beloved? They're eating the Passover meal. Okay, it's just obvious. They're, they're dining on the Passover meal. They're having this, that, what we would call now the Seder dinner. Jesus took some bread. After a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, verse 27. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my, uh, my blood of the covenant, verse 28, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Let's pause right there. Now in Luke, and I'll just read this to you, and you can compare it. This is a, a parallel passage out of Luke, in Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19. It says this, And when he'd taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, and saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So it just kind of fills in some understanding about what's going on here. And Jesus takes this meal, and this is very important, okay? Jesus takes this meal, and he fulfills it, Okay? Everything from the past pointed to this moment. And I'm sure that the disciples began to realize what was happening over time. Certainly, as time went on, after Jesus' death, his resurrection, the apostles certainly recognized what had happened. And now when the church looks to the turning point in history, the great redemptive moment doesn't look at Egypt, it looks at the cross. And that was Jesus' intent. It isn't the blood on the lintel and the doorpost now, it's the blood that was shed on the cross. And it isn't the sacrificial lamb that was partially consumed on that night. It's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Passover has been transformed into its ultimate fulfillment. And Jesus makes that transformation there with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. Now remember, Matthew 20, 26 says, while they were eating. So they're eating the Passover meal. And he takes a piece of matzo and he breaks it in half and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And he has all their attention now. And he takes a cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Now they're used to taking the Passover meal, but they're not used to hearing anybody say that. So Jesus has transformed this into its fulfillment. And all of a sudden, everyone has their attention focused on Jesus, and everybody knows that the Passover has changed. It's completed. They're not going backward anymore. They're not looking back at the Passover and the deliverance from Egypt. They're looking what's about to happen, and we now look back on what's happened on the cross, and that, that great redemptive moment. And this is the new covenant. Now, many believe, and I'm one of them, that the tradition of the meal and then the celebration of the Lord's table continued in the early church. The tradition of celebrating the Passover faded out of the early church, and it was replaced by a fellowship meal. And this was very common practice, and we, we can show this up here in just a minute. I'll show you some passages that indicate that indeed seems to be what was going on. We already saw from Acts 2.46, and we even, we even participate in that, don't we, here. We actually call our fourth Sunday night Acts 2.46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So part of what we do on, an, on a fourth Sunday night is part of that fulfillment of that fellowship or that love fest, if you will, that love feast, together breaking bread, meeting needs, being ready to share, inclined to share. So very regularly, they would meet together, have a fellowship meal, kind of carry in, if you will, and following that meal, they would often celebrate the Lord's table. So it appears, 
that the setting that Paul is commenting on in verse 1, uh, this time the church spent together in order to fellowship and meet needs and eat together and remember the Lord's death until he returns was important for unity. It was focused on the body and the life together, and they did it together as a body of believers. It was about the church, its redemption, its ministry, its effectiveness, its set-apartness, and we've pointed this out before. We tend to focus, as we come to the table, which we just did last Sunday night, we tend to focus on the tiny elements of the table. But the true focus really is to be on unity and testimony and togetherness and a shared redemption under the common head of Christ who sacrificed himself on our behalf as a body with many functions in the church. Okay? The, real, the real focus is on the common redemption. Now, there's going to be some introspection that has to go on, and Paul's going to talk about that and what should be occurring before you come to the table. But really, we focus on the little pieces and things, but really the, the focus is on unity, the common redemption that occurred at this, this pivotal point in history, and that redemption that's occurred because of your repentance and belief. Now, so they'd come together, they'd come together some, uh, for some teaching, just kind of wrap this up. They, they, they would come uh, together for fellowship activities, and they're important. And they came together for a meal, and they came together for the Lord's table. So with the attitude of fellowship, the giving and imparting, inclined to impart, and then they came and they celebrated a meal, and they celebrated the Lord's table. And these are good things. And, and then they would pray for each other and, and for their testimony and for God's supply, and all those things were part of what the church did, the early church did. Now, just to firm that up for you, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 1 through 7, and I'll put that on the screen, you just read along with me. Paul's in Ephesus. He just got through enduring a huge uproar because he was preaching there and all throughout Asia Minor, and people were turning from the idols to the true God, and you've got the silversmiths all getting up in arms, and they're coming in and making a big complaint, and there's a big riot, and Paul wants to go talk to them, and the disciples say, no, you're not going to, they're going to pull you apart. And so all this stuff is going on, okay, and finally somebody who, who gets, gets the attention of the, of the silversmiths and those who worship um, in Ephesus, he gets their attention and says, listen, you, you're gonna, you guys are going to get us all in trouble with the Romans, cut it out, if there's something that you have to take to court, take it to court, and so the crowd disperses. And everything quiets down. And then we have this passage, verse 1. Acts chapter 20. After the uproar had ceased, so that's the uproar we're talking about, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. Verse 2. When he had gone through those districts and given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, verse 3, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Verse 4. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So he says us, obviously that's Luke. So these eight guys are gone on ahead. Luke is writing it. He says, okay, they went on ahead of us. And we sailed, that's Luke and Paul, from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days and there we stayed seven days. Now catch this, okay? This is days after unleavened bread, after what, when they would normally celebrate the Passover. Now verse 7, okay? On the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. So Paul preaches a very long message, and they're probably eating a meal. So they came together to break bread. They're probably eating a meal. And look at verse 8. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, so it's well lit, and, and Paul's talking. They're eating a meal together, and there's this young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, and you know what's going to happen. He sinks into a deep sleep, and Paul uh, keeps on talking. He's overcome by sleep. He falls down from the third floor, okay? So he's drowsy sitting in the windowsill of the third floor, okay? It's every parent's worst nightmare. And so he falls down, and he's picked up dead. First Tim, but Paul went down, fell on him, and after embracing him, said, don't be troubled, for his life is in him. When he'd gone back up and broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. So the breaking of bread probably included both the fellowship meal and the Lord's table. And it appears that they had begun to do it on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. And so Sunday fellowship meal where it appears that Paul preached. And then after taking care of Eutychus, who became really the poster child for falling asleep in church, or really the poster child for eating a big meal and then coming to church and falling asleep or whatever it is, uh, he, he takes care of them. Then they come back and they break bread, probably the Lord's table. And then Paul still stays and he talks all the way till morning. So when we go late, just consider yourself fortunate that I'm not Paul and we're not going till the next morning, okay? So uh, 
Jude chapter 12 now it gives us another idea about what's going on, this love feast that goes on, and it's a common thing. Now, here, here Jude addresses this fellowship meal that's common to the churches, and he warns them about those who sow discord and complain and mess it up and mess up the unity that's supposed to be there, which is going to be Paul's topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So Jude talks about it. Here's what he says. He says this, there are men who are hidden reefs in your, what's he say, love feasts. So they're getting together, and people come in, and they're, they're messing everything up. That's the fellowship meal we're talking about, love feast a fellowship meal, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So people come in, they're coming to the love fest, and they're what they're doing, a love feast, and they're just messing it up because they're not bringing unity, they're bringing discord. And so uh, Jude addresses that and says, listen, this is what's going to happen. So uh, that's how high a priority the fellowship is. That's how high a priority the unity is that's supposed to occur because of the fellowship that's occurring in the church. Everything in the church is about unity because that reflects the proper testimony of Christ's transforming power. See? So everything that we do is about unity. Everything the church does is about unity. Uh, the breaking of bread together, the coming together for the ministry of the word, uh, the fellowship time that occurs. All this is about unity because that reflects the proper testimony of Christ's transforming power. That everybody has come to faith and they understand what it means to dwell with someone you normally wouldn't be friends with in peace and in unity and in mutual edification. So that's what it's all about, see? And so when Jude says, listen, they're going to come in and they're, they're messing up your love feasts, that's a, that's a serious thing. They're messing up the unity that's supposed to go on that leads into the Lord's table. Because usually it was a love feast, and then they came together and they celebrated the Lord's table. It's all part of their Sunday service. And like I said, you know, Brian does it a little differently than that, and other churches do it differently. But in general, it's, it's mostly the same idea. It's about unity. Now, we looked at the setting. Let's look at the sin that's causing the church to be unhealthy. And that's our next stop. And the problem with the church in Corinth was the manner of their coming together. So it's not a matter that they were coming together. It's the manner by which they were coming together. That's what Paul's going to take them to task about. Uh, the Corinthians coming together for their love feast did not create unity and testimony, but disunity and disharmony and division. And so it was therefore not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is saying, in effect, it'd be better if you just stayed home because what's going on here is not what's supposed to be going on here. Now let's look at verse 18, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, if you would. And see what problems were here. Verse 18. For in the first place, so Paul says, I'm not going to praise you. I'm not giving you commendation. Okay? I'm not going to say, hey, good job, because it's not a good job. And he's very firm with them, and here's why he's being firm with them. For in the first place, when you, here it is, come together. So they're coming together for fellowship. They're coming together for the breaking of bread. They're coming together for uh, celebrating the Lord's table. So you're coming together as a church. So it's the whole church doing this thing. I hear that divisions exist among you. And that word divisions is the Greek noun schismata. It's where we get our word schism. So sin problem number one, when they come together as a church, there isn't unity and sharing and mutuality going on there. There isn't an inclined to share. There are differences of opinion and divisions. That's what it is. Schismata is a difference of, a, of opinion or a division. It was apparent at the, at the beginning of the letter, as we looked at chapter one, uh, all these personalities, all these opinions, and people saying what they want to say and arguing and complaining about what they want to complain about and, and doing what they want to do. And that was right at the beginning Paul addressed this, and he sees this same thing going on here, creating disunity, creating disharmony, uh, complaining, whatever it is. Okay? It creates a division in, in unity, and that's not how it should be. That's sin number one. That's why Paul's not going to commend them. You're coming together, all right, coming together for division, coming together for gossip, coming together for complaining. No. That's not what is supposed to happen. Now look at, at uh, and actually I'll just I'll put it on the screen. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.10, just to remind you, we looked at this a uh, year or so ago. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree there be no divisions among you, and there be, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Here's his will, okay? This is, this is what the Lord Jesus wants, that you agree there be no divisions among you, that you may be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Not divisions, not schismata, but of one mind, in unity. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So you're arguing. And when you have a bunch of people more concerned about doing what they want to do, or what they used to do, or what someone else did, or what they think you should do, and then they aren't concerned about unity and fellowship and mutuality and sharing, as what you have then is a group that Paul says, it'd be better if you didn't come. <laughs> You're just messing everything up. It'd be, it's worse that you're together, okay? And this is the group Paul has to reprove because you have a whole bunch of people who think they should do something and this thing and whatever it is and just complaining about what's going on. Now, listen, all of that 
off to the side, Paul says. It hasn't have any business in the church. So, that's what's happening in Corinth. Let's take a look at the next interesting statement that spans verses 18 and 19. So Paul says this, he says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear divisions exist among you. And in part, he says, I believe it, verse 19, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, Paul says, it's kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? But listen to what he, what he, what he says as he talks about it. Now, he talked about up in 1 Corinthians 1.10 about the fact that there are divisions and there's people who, uh, who are coming with other ideas and they're bringing them in and, and creating a problem with unity. And he says, listen, there's, there's quarrels among you. I don't want you to do this. Here's what he says, okay, here. There's going to be factions in the church. There's going to be people who want to tout their own opinion. There's going to be people who want to complain. There's going to be people who want to gossip. There's, Paul says, it's going to happen. And when it does, there's one good thing that's going to come out of it. And what is it, beloved? What did he just say? So the ones who are approved, the dokimos, and we've looked at that word before, haven't we, would be revealed. Remember, the dokimos were those who were established to create a unified coin system in, in uh, ancient times because everybody printed their own gold money. Okay, so everybody's running around with gold that they're going to trade for something. And so these guys became the ones who said, okay, this is worth this. This is what the weight's going to be worth, whatever. And so here's what Paul says. He says, listen, Remember, okay, these are the ones who are tried and found correct. They're going to be made known. So Paul teaches that division within the congregation at Corinth served to show up those who've been approved or tested. God is more concerned, in other words, with the quality of faith and life in a tried and tested individual than mere numbers of professed adherents, people who just come just to come. Paul says, in part I believe it, for there must also be. Paul's word must tells us that true believers shine when it's revealed that they aren't participating in those sins. And I know if you've been in the church long enough, and if, particularly if you've pastored, you, you really realize who the ones who approved are when some gossip goes on and those people aren't involved and they come and encourage you. They're not, they're not caught up in the gossip. They're not caught up in the drama, whatever. They're the ones that come along and say, okay, yeah, let's, let's get involved in ministry. Let's, let's do the things that we're, you know, we were put here to do. Right? Or they come along, they say some positive thing, they encourage you, they pick you up. See, those are the people that became apparent. As soon as divisions come, and beloved, they should never come by way of you, okay? If you're bringing division in, if you're complaining, if you're sowing discord, listen, you set, up, set yourself up for God's uh, discipline. But they're going to come, Paul says. They're going to be in the church. Why? Because we're a whole bunch of different people, and we come from different backgrounds, and we're at different points in our walk with the Lord. Paul says, but listen, when the divisions come, all it does is it just shows those who are approved among you. Understand this, beloved, when you hear the complainers, Paul says, the ones who are never satisfied, the backbiters, the opinionated, the ones who always love discord, you'll know who they are, and they aren't the dokimos, okay? They aren't the approved ones. And two, the Lord has revealed, again, his mind, again, in those issues, those that participate are not approved, okay, no matter what the situation may be. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians 10, didn't we? That uh, one of the things that Paul illustrates about your freedom in Christ and what you should be avoiding in freedom in Christ, what was one of the four things we looked at? Those who complained. He pointed it out in Israel, said, what happened to those who complained? Many of them were lost in the wilderness. The Lord didn't allow them to continue to the promised land. So that's what happens. So Paul says, listen, there's going to be some factions, and I believe that there's going to be some factions, but those factions are there just to show who are approved. Those are the ones that are not involved with it. Now let's look at verse 20, okay? Therefore, he says, when you meet together, it is, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, Paul says, you think you're doing what you're supposed to do, but you're not. You're coming just to satisfy yourself and do what you want, and, and, and then you're participating in the fellowship of the heart and breaking bread together. Uh, you know, you can see Paul's scar sarcasm here. He says, you know, is it possible to break bread together when you're just thinking about yourself? You're coming to eat the Lord's Supper. Come on. In verse 21, he says, for in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and the other is drunk. Now, as we've laid the foundation, you can kind of see what's going on. You're getting together for their love feast. There's so things that are going on there that shouldn't be going on. And then they're going right from that, where? To the Lord's table. So they're bringing all the selfishness and division and faction, whatever, and they're doing it in the love feast, and then they're breaking up the unity, then they're trying to come to the Lord's table where we celebrate what the Lord has done in unity in our common faith. See? Paul says, no. And what they were doing, really, was they're bringing their, really, their past life right into the church. From history, we know, and I'll just give you this as a, as a, as a footnote, we know that pagan worship festivals and clubs and associations often had communal meals. And so many of these would be familiar with what was going on in the church in their past life. It was not uncommon for the food served to the, the, the ones who were dining to differ in quality, to differ in amount. 
Uh, privileged guests and those who were really wealthy might be served more and better food. And so being invited to a communal meal didn't automatically mean you were going to guarantee something wonderful to eat and with plenty of it. It just depended on your station in life. Uh, you might get very little. Now, to illustrate this, uh, Pliny the Younger is, is uh, from his letters, we've, we find a lot of background for New Testament, uh, the New Testament, uh, what was going on there in the situation. But anyway, they're very valuable to his story. It's just this is one little uh, letter to a guy named Junius Avitus. It really illustrates our point. I want to read it to you. I think you'll, you'll think it's, um, it's important when you hear it. Pliny's writing this, and he says this. It would take too long to go into the details, which anyway don't matter, he says, of how I happen to be dining with a man. Though no particular friend of his, whose elegant economy, as he called it, seemed to me a sort of stingy extravagance. The best dishes were set in front of himself and a select few, and cheap scraps of food before the rest of the company. He had even put the wine into tiny little flasks divided into three categories, not with the idea of giving his guests the opportunity of choosing, but to make it impossible for them to refuse what they were given. One lot was intended for himself and for us, another for his lesser friends, all his friends are graded, and the third for his and for our freedmen. My neighbor at table noticed this and asked me if I approved, and I said I did not. So what do you do, he said. Well, I serve the same to everyone, for when I invite guests, it is for a meal, not to make class distinctions. I have brought them as equals to the same table, so I give them the same treatment in everything. Even the freedmen, he said? Of course, for then they are my fellow diners and not freedmen. Well, that must cost you a lot. On the contrary. Well, how is that, he said? Well, because my freedmen do not drink the sort of wine I do, but I drink theirs. Believe me, if you restrain your greedy instincts, it is no strain on your finances to share with several others the fare you yourself are having. It is this greed which should be put down and reduced to the ranks. If you would cut down expenses, you can do this far better by self-restraint than by insulting other people, end quote. So you can kind of see this whole situation. He's writing a letter. He's like, man, I went to this dinner party, and this was a, this was a total fiasco. This guy had graded everybody, and you got a certain flask, and you didn't get to pick what you wanted to drink, and, and he thought he was, you know, being really extravagant, but really he was just being, he was just kind of insulting everybody, and, and so Pliny's sitting beside somebody, goes, do you do this? And Pliny's like, no, no, I don't do this. Ridiculous. Anyway, you can kind of see that's the, that's the habit in, ancient, in the ancient world, and we can see, even see it in the scriptures. Some in the Roman culture recognized the wrong of this type of behavior and, and uh, understood that this was not what it's supposed to be. Now, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 14. You're going to get exactly the same idea here. Perhaps you never read it this way, but now you have an idea of what's going on in the ancient uh, culture. Then this uh, parable in, in uh, Luke 14 is going to make more sense to you. Look at Luke 14, 7. You can hold your finger in 1 Corinthians. We'll be back there in just a moment. Well, Luke 14, 7. I hope I haven't lost you with all the details, but I think part of the fun of, of digging into the scripture is also digging into some of that stuff that goes in underneath there and things that they perhaps were thinking as they're coming to this love feast and some of the stuff that was in their background. We've seen that, the culture salting the church in Corinth a number of times, and we can kind of see it, I think, here. But look, as Jesus does this parable, I think you're going to see exactly the same idea. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the tables, so saying to them, so the guests are coming in and everybody's coming to the main table and nobody sits, sits in the outside rooms or out in the courtyard. They're trying to squeeze into the main table because they know what? That's where the best food's going to be. That's where the best drink's going to be. All right. That's where the honor's going to be. So they're all squeezing in. Jesus is watching them do this. And that's what the culture says. And that's what they're experienced. That's what they experienced before. So they're all squeezing in. Now look at verse eight. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. Verse 9, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. So first thing is, just don't sit down there where the place of honor is because it's going to be embarrassing to you perhaps. Okay, so and he's going to get to more moral issues in just a second. But just, just from a practical purpose, if you don't want to be embarrassed, then don't take the head of the table. Go sit somewhere else and let them move you up. That's what he's going to say. Verse 10, but when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. So be humble, and you may be advanced. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now we get to the moral part of the issue, don't we? It's just, it's just not right to go do it. Not only will you be embarrassed, or maybe you'll be 
uh, advanced, but it's just, it's not right to do it. It's better to be humble. Now, verse 12. And he would also went on to say that the one who had to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. Verse 13. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Verse 14. And then you'll be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pause right there. Jesus is pointing out the activity of the redeemed. And the redeemed don't exalt themselves. The redeemed take care of those who have little. So clearly, the opposite was the case in the culture. You wanted a good seat so you could have the good treatment and have the great food. And the tendency was to invite those who could invite you back and repay you for your generous hospitality to them so you could have it at their house. Okay? And of course, that pagan attitude had infiltrated the fellowship time here in Corinth. The wealthier members of the congregation clearly provided most of the food. This could have been really a marvelous expression of Christian love, a true love feast, if you would, and unity would have come from that. But it was degraded to the very opposite, see. The poor would have to finish their work before they could come, and the slaves would find it particularly difficult to be there on time. But the rich didn't wait, and they ate and drank among their divisions, see. And it's just compounded. Not only were there divisions, but look at the next part. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 21, it says, For in your eating and drinking, one takes his own supper first, and one's hungry, and another is drunk. So he says, each one takes his own supper first. Each eating their own dinner, see? Just compounding the whole problem. Uh, your, your disunity, your your. your factions that are there, your schisms, and all of that stuff. And then you're just coming, you're just eating your own dinner. You're not waiting for anybody. The food was gone before the poor got there. They weren't thinking about unity. They weren't thinking about sharing. They weren't thinking about commonality. They weren't thinking about fellowship. Just thinking about themselves, see. When so Paul corrects them in verse 33, he's going to say, wait for one another. See, he's going to just fix this whole, this whole fellowship dinner that's going on. Wait for one another. Some problem number two then was selfishness and willfulness. Selfishness and willfulness. Now, it seems likely that those who began before others were wealthier, so they were able to eat and drink to the full. And here it is, those who came later would likely be the poor members, the slaves. The only food then, see, and as we read that passage, maybe you're wondering, the only food they would get would be the bread and the cup of the Lord's table. See, They're coming to the fellowship dinner, but they're not waiting on each other. They're just kind of eating up and selfishly serving themselves and whatever. The poor get there, the, the slaves get there, they can't get there on time. That's, there's nothing much left. Now they're going to move into the Lord's table and they're going to get a, a piece of bread and a little cup. And that was it. And we're going to see more about this next time. But with all that self-centeredness, were they just going to move on into the Lord's table? Paul says, seriously? Hardly. That's, that's fellowship, Paul says. And Paul's hot and he's upset with him. And really the intensity of Paul's words... And his anger at those who are creating this division and the, and the wealthy who, who are just kind of taking, them, taking care of themselves can, all, can be felt all the way till February 2016, in my opinion. I mean, listen, listen to what he says. He is hot. There's no other passages in the New Testament, that deal, as Paul's dealing with the church, where he gets as hot about, as, as he does about this breaking of the fellowship and the breaking of the, of the mutuality and what's supposed to be going on in unity. He's mad about it. He's already talked about it in 1 Corinthians 1. He's going to talk about it here again. He's going to say, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Now I am missing this all. There we go. Do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you, Paul says. Paul uses a series of rhetorical questions and he really hammers the sinful selfishness that's going on there. This come breaking of all this unity that's supposed to be part of this love fest. And as you move into the Lord's table, there's this unity that goes on. This is ministering to one another, sharing with one another. It's not happening because there's schisms there and they're backbiting and they're just sitting with people who think the same way they do. And there's not unity going on. And then they're just not waiting for anybody, just eating what they want, taking their own dinner and all that stuff. The whole thing's messed up. And then they kind of move into the Lord's table. Paul goes, no, I don't think so. Come and do a love feast, but there's no love there. Selfishness and sinfulness and willfulness really despises the church and everything that Christ built, see? You wealthy have houses, he says, to eat and drink in. You do, don't you? Or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who don't have anything? What shall I say to you? Shall I heap praise on you? There's not a chance I'm going to do that, Paul says. 
The wealthy had houses in which they, they certainly ate and drank by bringing their wealth into the meeting of the saints and flaunting it before the poor and eating and drinking lavishly and, and doing so without waiting for the poor members and being having divisions among them and just having a bunch of complaining attitudes among us. The whole thing was messed up, Paul says. Then you want to move into the Lord's table. And you wonder why a number of you are sick and a number of you sleep and a number of you are weak because the Lord doesn't want this. He wants unity in the church. And he just moves in and just says, okay, you're going to cause trouble, that's it. You know, you're going to be sick for a while. You're going to be weak for a while. Maybe I'll take you home. You're not going to make, it's like the, the Israel, Israel of old where they just didn't make it into the promised land because the Lord says, I've had it. I'm just taking you home. And so this is what, Paul's hot. We know Paul has a passion for the poor. He has a passion for the less fortunate, for the weak. Jesus' parable we looked at just a few moments ago certainly lets us see that priority, right, in Luke. Invite people who can't pay you back. Invite people who don't have what you, know, what you have and, and, and take care of them and have fellowship with them and minister to them, see? But what bothers Paul the most is that this is supposed to be a breaking of bread together, see? The early church gave themselves over to the teaching of the word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is the church. It's a body, see? There's supposed to be unity and caring and mutuality and need meeting. And the whole church is supposed to come together to witness of the common salvation and by the care that's shown to each other and to each one, see. You witnessed that you've been changed. That's not going on, Paul says. Galatians, Paul writes, he says this, bear one another's burdens and thereby, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Kind of takes a broad stroke, doesn't it? You think you're something, but you're really nothing. We're all just saved by God's grace. Verse 4, but each one must examine his own work, and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not regard to another. And then verse 10 says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is what the household of faith is supposed to do, doing the one another's to each other, see, and ministering and, 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 and continuing in the ministry of the word and the fellowship into the breaking of bread, both breaking bread and a meal together and coming together for the Lord's table. It's all about unity, see. And those, those are going to be displayed very clearly in what happens in those times. I'm going to wrap up because we're about out of time. But next week, Paul's going to restate the standard. He's going to, say, he's going to show us what it's supposed to look like, what, what the table is, and that's going to show, us, uh, show them what it's supposed to look like as they come in. We've seen the setting. We've seen the sin. Next week, we'll see the standard. Listen, a couple of things, and I know that we look at, as we look at the background, it's sometimes hard to grab the things that are the principles in general that can help enrich us and help us understand what's supposed to go on as the church comes together for fellowship, the whole church, as the whole church comes together to celebrate the Lord's table. What's supposed to, what is it supposed to look like? First of all, just answer these questions in your own mind, okay? What came after the time in the Word or in the early church according to Acts 2? Fellowship, right? Time in the Word and Fellowship and the breaking of bread. And the whole church was to do it. And beloved, what are we supposed to be doing this evening? Do you remember? Yeah. What's today? Today's Hospitality Sunday night, right? Where many of you will be watching the Super Bowl. If you don't care about the Super Bowl, you'll be doing something else. And we've encouraged you, I've encouraged you to show hospitality to one another, to, to break bread together in your house, invite people over. Are you doing that? Is that? You know, I don't think you can come away with a reading of what goes on in the New Testament church and exclude that from your ministry, that breaking of bread together, that house to house and in, in, uh, in fellowship. So I think it's a great application today. And yes, a shameless plug on what we're supposed to do. But I think it just, you know, it dovetails right into it. Number two, was the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the Lord's table just for a few? It was just for a few to do? No, it wasn't, was it? It was for everyone, the whole assembly. You need... Everyone and everyone needs you, beloved. Did you know that? If you're really born again, you have time in the Word, you have fellowship, you have breaking your bread, and you have prayer together. We need you, you need us. So if you excluded that from your, your weekly or monthly schedule, you need to add it back in, beloved, okay? Because you're missing a huge section of what it means to be a believer. And we're missing you, too. And thirdly, and we'll see more of this in a few weeks. Do you think that the Lord watches what goes on in the church that breaks fellowship and unity? Do you think he's concerned about it a little bit from what we just read? From Paul's words alone, do you think it concerns the Lord what happens in fellowship and in unity? I would say that it concerns him a lot, wouldn't you? 
And anything that breaks unity and anything that breaks fellowship of a complaining nature or a backbiting nature or a gossiping nature breaks down the testimony of the church and the Lord has let us know that he can step in and discipline that and he can do it severely. He doesn't want that at all. It didn't please Paul because it didn't please the Lord. And on the other side, promoting the fellowship and commonality and mutuality and love proves that you're approved. See, You're one of those who's been tested and found approved. And the Lord looks at you and sees the right measure, the right weight, purified and true. More goes on in the meetings together than what we can see. More is being observed. More things and more... More individuals are observing what goes on in the church than just what we see. As we talked about last week, holy angels and holy angels are all watching. Christ watches what goes on. God's concerned about, as we see here, fellowship, unity. The church meeting is not just any old meeting that you just add to your schedule. We come together for teaching. We come together for fellowship. We come together for meals, for prayer. And in doing that, we glorify the Lord, beloved. We make Him look awesome. You bring your gifts, as we talked about today in Be the Church Cast. You bring your gifts that the Holy Spirit's given to you, and you minister, and you make the Holy Spirit look alive in this church. You show that he's transformed you, see. We come together to worship God. We come together to celebrate our unity. Let it be pure, see. Let it be real. Not defined by you and what you want to do. Defined by what the Lord says was established in the early church, what he says you need do, Okay. All right, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. A few announcements before we go. In the time of greeting our guests, bow with me if you would. We can kind of firm up what the Lord has said to us today. Lord, we thank you today for the opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for, even in this passage, which Paul is dealing with this rebellious Corinthian church that has really uh, messed up a lot of the things that the early church did by bringing, allowing the culture to assault the church. Lord, we can pull out a number of great principles, and Lord, I pray that you'll help us understand them so easy to justify our actions and justify why we're absent, to justify why we're not doing what uh, we have seen the scriptures say. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, temporary things that can invade those and, and supplant those things that are most important. But do we really think somehow the family will be better if that's what it is because we avoided the fellowship? In some way, do we think we're going to do better at our job or our responsibilities, wherever they may be, uh, because we avoided the commonality and the breaking of bread and the Lord's table? Somehow we think our own convenience, Father, is, is somehow more important than what you said is to, to be a part of the fabric of the church. Somehow we think we can bring a divisive attitude, a complaining spirit, a gossiping heart into the fellowship and break the unity and think somehow the Lord doesn't see nor will, and think somehow the Lord will ignore as if we're spiritual or something. So Father, I pray that you'll help us understand these things. And in the middle of this very difficult issue with the Corinthians, we can understand what the church is supposed to look like. And then thank you, Father, for the many who are a part of the fellowship that goes on here and many who are part of giving themselves away and all of that. But Lord, we know that there's room for improvement. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, uh, the things I've taught you, you're doing, do so even more. So Lord, I pray that wherever we are in our walk, whatever we've established as our pattern, if it doesn't align with what we were beginning to see here, that we'll change those things for your own glory to show that uh, you are here, you've transformed us, we're unified. We pray this for the, in the name of Jesus and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen.